Hello, Gateway. I'm Christina Bonet, and I'm currently on the other side of the world, in Japan. I'll be reading Philippians 3, 1 through 11 for you today, and then my family back home will read the rest of the chapter. Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Good morning, Gateway. I'm Emily Bonnet, and this is my dad, Mike, my mom, Susie, and my grandma, Phyllis Malcolm. Today, we'll continue reading through Philippians 3, verses 12 through 21. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Good morning. Welcome to Gateway Online. Today, we return to our series on stubborn joy. We've been talking about how you experience stubborn joy for the last two months. What does it look like? How does joy bloom even in the most trying circumstances like this flower here in an otherwise barren landscape, not in any way to be confused with group? 
We've been looking at all of that over the last weeks together, marching our way through Paul's letter to a group of Christians in the ancient city of Philippi. And what an interesting topic for God to have us noodle on during our quarantining, right? I hope that some of it has begun to find a permanent place in your heart and mind. It has in mind. Uh, today we're going to be looking at a large section of this letter that the Bonnets read for us, a little differently than we usually look at the Bible. Here's what I mean. The Bible is an extraordinary document. It's a library of books, really, that spell out God's encounter with human beings. It's uniquely inspired by God, and it gives us God's perspective. So whenever I personally study the Bible, or even more so, when I think about speaking from the Bible, I always ask myself two vital questions. One, what was the author of the passage I'm reading trying to say to his original audience? And two, what does that say to me today? Many years ago, I had a seminary professor tell me, God isn't going to say something to you through this passage that he hasn't said for the last 2,000 years. You're not that important. So make the point the original author was making and then apply it to your life. And that's what I've consistently tried to do over the years. Okay, so I'm going to violate that principle this morning a little bit. So you need to be especially cautious as you listen today. Sorry to put that burden on you, but you need to be careful to strain out anything that might be Ed stuff today. Meaning, I'm going to impose an outline on Philippians chapter 3 that I don't really believe was at the front of Paul's mind when he wrote it, or not exactly anyway. We're going to answer a question that I'm not sure he was consciously asking, but I do think this question will help us understand the passage, or maybe more, it will help us apply it to ourselves. So I want to look at chapter 3 of Philippians this morning and extract from it what will essentially be a checklist for Christian maturity. In other words, what does it look like when someone is maturing in Christ? Have you ever heard the phrase, I'm growing in Christ, or I'm growing as a Christian? What does that mean? What does a person look like who's growing that way? And, and how do you and I measure up to that? Okay, first a quick word to those of you who feel like you're somewhat on the outside looking in at spiritual things. Clearly, knowing what a mature Christian looks like may not be at the top of your need-to-know list. But I think you'll find some interesting points here this morning, so hang out. Secondly, a word to those of you who are interested in Christian maturity. What we say this morning will, of necessity, be a survey. We don't have time to dive very deeply into any of these individual characteristics, but they're well worth thinking about and praying about. So I'll post the characteristics that we talk about this morning on our website, mygateway.life. And I encourage you to review them at some point this week and ask God to review you in the process and in light of them, mygateway.life. All right, from this one chapter, I think we can gather at least seven characteristics for our checklist of Christian maturity. It's an awesome. Let's look at them and see how we measure up. So characteristic number one, mature Christians are people who choose to rejoice. No surprise here, given our topic. We began our series of conversations by stealing a definition of joy from John Piper. He said this, Joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the Word and in the world. We want stubborn joy. It's a good feeling. 
Still, by week three of our conversations, we had to acknowledge that joy isn't a constant for any of us. Joy isn't a constant for any of us. Nobody gets to live that life. But we also said that we can make choices that help us build a life within which joy becomes more typical. Our conversations over the last six weeks have been about some of those choices that produce that kind of life. And this first characteristic is another one of those choices. Mature Christians are people who choose to rejoice. They choose to find joy in things. Paul put it like this at the very beginning, verse 1. My brothers and sisters rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard to you. Mature Christians are not naive. They recognize that the glass is half empty, but they know that this means it's also half full, and they rejoice. Why does Paul say this is a safeguard? You know, if you do a Google search on the benefits of gratitude, one of the first two or three results you get will be an article from Psychology Today that lists, quote, seven scientifically proven benefits of gratitude. It came up for me. I want us to listen to their list of benefits of gratitude proven through scientific studies. Number one, gratitude opens the door to more relationships. Number two, gratitude improves physical health. Number three, gratitude improves psychological health. Number four, gratitude enhances empathy and reduces aggression. Number five, grateful people sleep better. I need to be more grateful. Number six, gratitude improves self-esteem. Think about that, parents. Number seven, gratitude increases mental strength. I wish we had time to talk about all of that, but again, this is just a survey. However, I want to make sure we recognize one big picture thing, that God is advocating something. He's actually commanding something that makes us healthier and more well-adjusted in every way. One of the impressive things about really digging into following Christ is that the life of Christ follower works. We run better on Jesus. An example of this is maturing Christians choose to rejoice. And obviously this increases the amount of joy in our lives. So what's the gratitude quotient in your life right now? That's the question for us, right? How long and well thought through is your thank God list. And by that, I don't mean your thank God list. Okay, second characteristic. Mature Christians are people who choose Christ. These are pretty obvious, right? This is painfully obvious, but it's worth teasing out. I want you to look at verses two and three with me in this passage. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Notice, mature Christians are not distracted even by good things. That's kind of what he's saying. Let me explain. This passage refers to circumcision. And in short, Paul is arguing that Christ followers don't need to worry about circumcision because the demand for circumcision as a religious observance is really a demand that the practitioner follow the whole law. It's about following the law. And that following the whole law becomes the point of our religious lives. Well, for Paul, the point of our religious lives is Christ and our devotion to him and only him. So the circumcision thing, look, that's an old theological argument that doesn't really rumble through our thoughts anymore. But we are equally tempted to be distracted by other things, seemingly good things, 
I've been distracted in my life by healing, for instance. It seems to be real, according to the Bible. Why don't I see it more? Why can't it happen more in my life and through my prayers? I have personally pursued that question to the point of distraction. I've been distracted by knowledge, another example. And I'm talking about good knowledge, knowing stuff about God, stuff about the Bible, stuff about church. I've been tempted to think that that's the point of my religion. I've been distracted by social issues or even certain theological issues, wanting all of you to agree with me, thinking that was part of my job to get you to agree. No, it's Christ, Paul argues. He's the point. That's where it begins and ends. Mature Christians are not distracted. They stay focused on Christ. A second way to look at the same point is, is that mature Christians put their confidence in Christ. That's Paul's word. Or put another way, the Bible often says they put their hope in Christ. They don't put their hope in their resume. Paul says, I've, I've got an impressive religious res- resume, but I place no confidence in that. Mature Christians don't put their hope in how accomplished they are or in their children or even in how good they are. They put their hope in Christ. Mature Christians do this by choice. Listen to verses 7 and 8. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider, I choose to think as a loss for the sake of Christ. All of it, everything about my past, about me, put it on one side of the ledger. It's all a loss compared to the other side of the ledger, which only has Christ. What is more, he says, I consider, I choose to think that everything is a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Mature Christians are people who choose Christ once and for all and then every day. They set aside all of the distractions. They willfully put their hope in Christ. Now, let's be honest. For some of us, this doesn't sound very practical. It sounds very religious, but not where we live. But I want to argue against that. It's extremely practical because it works. Consistently choosing Christ and leaning into that choice every day enables us to build a life where joy is typical. Mature Christians choose to rejoice and mature Christians choose Christ. Okay, a third characteristic that he covers. Mature Christians are people who experience holy frustration. How do you like that? Look at the first part of verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. So mature Christians are not perfect. And they're frustrated about it. Let me repeat that. Mature Christians are not perfect and they're frustrated about it. But this is not frustration that dampens joy. Instead, it's frustration that fuels improvement. I like how Roberta Hestonese put it. She said, maturity is pressing toward the mark. Immaturity is complacency and self-satisfaction. Very early in his missionary efforts, Paul wrote one of his groups of friends and he said to them, I am the least of all the apostles. I mean, this is the guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He took the story of Jesus single-handedly through much of the Middle East and to a significant part of Europe. The least of all the apostles. Come on, Paul. And then, later in one of his letters, later in his life, deeper in his walk with Christ, he said, I am the least of all the saints. What? you got to be kidding me, Paul. And in one of his last letters, toward the end of his life, Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. The closer we get to Christ, the more the blemishes in our lives disappear, and yet the clearer the remaining ones become to us. 
Like great artists or great athletes, maturing Christians experience holy frustration. And this frustration fuels growth. So today, praise God for the holy frustration you feel and allow it to compel you forward. A fourth characteristic, maturing Christians experience holy forgetfulness. <laughs> holy frustration and holy forgetfulness. Verse 13, Paul puts it like this. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Now, someone out there is thinking, I wish you would tell my counselor that. They're forever asking me about my mom and dad and my past. Paul doesn't mean that we should live in denial about what's happened to us and how our families formed who we are. Of course not. Your counselor's right to ask. But Paul does mean that maturing Christians don't live in the past. It does not define us. Maturing Christians collect fruit from the past. They observe the past, learn lessons from it, but the focus of the attention of maturing Christians is forward. I saw this great quote this week from President Harry Truman. He said, if you've done the best you can, if you've done what you have to do, there's no use worrying about it because nothing can change it. And to be in a position of leadership, you have to give thought to what's going to happen the next day and you have to be fresh for it. What you have to do the next day, what you're going to do is more important than what you've done. Amen, Harry. Mature Christians choose to rejoice. Mature Christians choose Christ. Mature Christians experience holy frustration and mature Christians experience holy forgetfulness. Are you living in the past in some way? These are the kind of questions we should be asking. Does some aspect of your past define you? There's freedom, there's growth, and there's productivity in turning our attention toward the goal ahead of us. And what's that goal? So five, characteristic number five, mature Christians have a heavenly focus. In verse 14, Paul says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, this is a hard one for suburban Americans. In short, the focus of Paul's spiritual thoughts and his emotional energy was eternity. So one of the greatest theologians in American history was the pastor and university president, Jonathan Edwards. When Edwards was a young man, he spent a couple of years writing out resolutions for himself, 70, that became sort of a personal life mission statement. I encourage you to look up Edwards' resolutions sometime. It's a daunting list, but incredibly inspiring. And I just want to read you three of his resolutions this morning. Resolution number nine, resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and the common circumstances which attend death. Resolution 22, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can with all the power, might, vigor, vehemence, yea, violence I'm capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. Number 50, resolved, I will act so as I think I shall judge would have been best and most prudent when I come into the future world. Mature Christians have a heavenly focus. Now, one can read a list like this and think it's a bit morbid. This sounds like the opposite of fun. But later in life, Edwards would claim that his resolutions and his attention to his resolutions had made him more productive and happier. Paul agrees. He says a few verses later in this passage in chapter 3, Our citizenship 
You remember that word from a few weeks ago? Our poetuomai, our allegiance, our devotion, where we represent is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. I know if you're standing on the outside of faith, or even if if you're at the edge, this can sound a bit overdone or, or like religious gobbledygook. That's the technical term. But it's not. I submit with a complete straight face that this is part of the recipe for building a life in which joy is more frequent. And it's what mature Christians look like. Mature Christians have a heavenly focus. So, have you read a book about heaven in the last few years or ever? Do you regularly recognize your own mortality? Do you ever dwell on what forever might mean and and how you will meet it? Maturity requires that we do so. All right, number six. Speaking of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions, mature Christians live with holy diligence. Our church staff is reading a book together called Emotionally Healthy Church. It's very good. This past week, we were discussing this question from our study guide. What is one thing you miss about your earlier days as a Christian? I thought of chapter 3, verse 16, and this characteristic during that discussion. Paul says in verse 16, Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Mature Christians live with holy diligence. Sometimes we lose ground in our spiritual lives through distraction or sin or laziness. Sometimes we step backwards. In other words, we know things that we don't live out, we don't live up to. For example, we've learned something about not sinning in our anger that we don't exercise. Or we've learned something about how to battle temptation that we don't employ. Or we've learned something about prayer that we don't practice. Or we've learned something about relationships that we stop engaging. Paul summarizes his thoughts up to now in verses 15 and 16. He says this, All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you only, and this is the key phrase again, only let us live up to what we have already attained. Now, this whole chapter drips with diligence, doesn't it? But especially here, it takes dogged diligence, a holy diligence, not to lose ground spiritually, but continue to live up to what we've already attained. Is there some lesson that God has taught you? That you spent time and energy, perhaps tears, learning. Only now you see some old pre-lesson pattern re-emerging. Has your relationship gotten tired? Things about nurturing love that you know discarded, not lived up to. Is there some bitterness or anger that you're nurturing? You know better. Is there some need for control that you've grabbed back a hold of? You know better, but still you run back to it. Mature Christians live with holy diligence. They gain new ground and they do not surrender it. Finally, number seven, mature Christians have a holy worldview. A holy worldview. By worldview here, I mean a way of doing things, a way of living your life, and a framework for thinking about your life. In fact, a framework for thinking about everything. Worldview is what you do, how you do it, and how you see things overall. So let me read verses 17 through 21, the end of this passage. Join with others in following my example, Paul says, 
and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I want you to notice the dualism he's going to set up here. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Things that, are, that they think are great about them are things they should be ashamed of. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So Paul here lays out two different patterns or two different worldviews, if you will. On the one hand, the maturing Christian, and on the other, the person who lives apart from Christ. And through this section, he kind of answers four questions about each of those patterns, each of those worldviews. What they think about the story of Jesus, their ultimate destiny, what becomes of their lives, the center of gravity for their lives, and the object of their worship. So first, what they think about the story of Jesus. For those who are apart from Christ, they think it's foolishness. They are, he says, enemies of the cross. Maturing Christians, he's their Savior and Lord. Their destiny or where their life ends up, those apart from Christ, destruction. For maturing Christians, one word, salvation. The center of gravity for their life or the center of their attention. Those who are apart from Christ, it's earth. Literally, he says earthly things. It's literally, he says, their stomach, their baser desires. For maturing Christians, it's heaven. And what's the object of their worship? For those who are apart from Christ, it's their own bodies. And for maturing Christians, it's the one who controls everything, who will, by the way, ultimately transform their bodies. Mature Christians have a different operating system. They have a holy worldview. So mature Christians live with a holy diligence. They work to keep the ground they've gained, and they have a heavenly focus. And this, of course, informs their holy worldview. Mature Christians are people who experience holy forgetfulness and holy frustration. And they do so with gratitude because they choose to rejoice. In other words, mature Christians press forward, looking ahead with intentionality and some frustration that they can't move further, faster, and yet they do all of this with gratefulness. And mature Christians choose Christ once and for all and every day. I want to encourage you to go to mygateway.life this week and find this list of characteristics of a mature Christian and spend some time reflecting. I think when I was younger, I imagined that my life, as I got older and more mature, would get bigger and bigger over time. Once it tells you a lot about me, but more and more of God's power, more and more impact, more and more and larger and larger circles of influence. And honestly, more and more people saying, wow, that guy's awesome and so cool, by the way. I thought of all this when I read an article recently about tree growth, of all things. The article was about a guy named Nate Stevenson, who is a forest ecologist. And he got together with 37 scientists from 16 countries to study the growth of trees. They studied 700,000 trees. And they discovered that at a certain point in their lives, trees stop growing taller. But they never stop growing in girth. They don't get taller, but they continue to grow wider and stronger. In the same way, the lives of maturing Christians do not grow larger and larger, but they grow deeper and deeper and more and more like Christ. 
In fact, over the years, as I've watched and learned from maturing Christians, I've noticed that you often see less and less of some of the personality features that dominated their earlier lives. You certainly see less pride. You may see less certainty. You see less hurry. You see less shame, even less regret. You see less grabbing and clutching for things. You see less of what burdens and weighs us down, but you see more of Christ. So let's close today with a little time of reflection. I'm going to pray a prayer, and I'm going to just pause for 10 seconds and let you deal with it. Let's dig into this. If you're able, let's perhaps get on our knees or let's get ourselves into a posture of prayer, and let's just spend a a moment reflecting this morning. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice today. We count our blessings right now. Lord, build into us the clarity of focus and the diligence that maturity requires. And as an act of our will, we release what is not helpful from the past and we turn toward what you might have for us moving forward. Almighty God, grab our attention and inspire us to turn our thoughts toward eternity. Honestly, we want the joy that maturing in Christ brings. We want the freedom. We want the release. We want the unburdened ease. But more than anything else, we want Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.